Welcome to the Property Voice Podcast, helping you to navigate safely through the world of property investing. Get the lowdown and updates, insights and outcomes on all matters property with a splash of entertainment along the way. The Property Voice, a voice to trust among the crowd. Now, let's get started with your host, Richard Brown. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Property Voice podcast. My name is Richard Brown and as always, it's a pleasure to have you join me again on the show today. Well, I'm on the road again, so um, and it's it's quite late approaching the deadline. I'm in a hotel room, and I've been, but I have been thinking about this podcast uh, episode for uh, a little while now, for over a week, in fact. So, um, certainly mentally, I'm prepared, even if perhaps from a script point of view, it's not 100% perfect. So, if it doesn't come over, you know, totally great today, I do apologise. But um, I think I've got it more or less. But uh, less of that. I think the point I was um, really been mulling over the last week. Uh, came out of a, of a question I was posed at a, uh, by Anthony at a workshop that I ran just over a week ago. And um, he actually asked me towards the end, we had a bit of a Q&A session. He said, uh, how, how do you de-risk your property portfolio? And um, I think it's a very good question to ask, in fact. And uh, I gave, obviously gave about five or six points off the top of, uh, off the top of my head whilst uh, we're all present to the, uh, there in the workshop. But I, w- I was really thinking and dwelling on this particular question as afterwards, and I thought it'd be a really good uh, topic to share in the podcast. So that's the theme for today. And I'm going to share some of the headline methods of how I go about de-risking my property portfolio and, in fact, my wider investment portfolio to some extent. Uh, but as you'll detect, the approach may uh, may evolve as your property of uh, portfolio also evolves. So it's something of a flexible approach, I've found at least. But needless to say, let's dive right in now and deal with that question in a little bit more detail in Property Chatter. Okay, so let's get on with this week's featured topic with Property Chatter. So... I'm going to go through, uh, I've got a bit of a long list actually. I, I, did, I, I must admit, I didn't think it was going to be quite this long. Um, I think a lot of what, it, what I do is planned, but some of it is also um, subconscious to some extent. So over the last week, I've been really reflecting about how I actually go about trying to de-risk my property portfolio. And um, I jotted down some notes and it turned out it's quite a long list. So uh, feel free to use a supermarket approach and uh, you know pick and mix what is uh, right and relevant for you. And certainly, um, as I'll probably discuss when I sum up, my portfolio is quite diverse now. It's quite widespread geographically uh, across different segments and uh, and and uh, strategies for that matter. So um, it might be you know more complicated than perhaps it needs to be for for other people. But if I just talk you through some of what I do, perhaps some of it could be useful, and uh, maybe maybe some of it not so. But I'll always start with this, in fact, and um, it's, it's, it's highly, highly relevant. And you'll probably hear me talk about it quite a lot. But know what you're looking for. And by that, I mean, have a clear plan, have a strategy and have set deal criteria. So that's that's really easy to say, of course, have a plan, have a strategy and have deal criteria. But if you if you thought about it, you know what you're looking for. You've written it down. You perhaps sanity checked it with somebody who understands these things. And um, it's going to help you to avoid being blown off course, quite frankly, because there's the shiny penny syndrome. There's lots of things you could do in property. But uh, once you know what you want to do, then you can stay focused to that. 
So as I say, have it all written down. And uh, if, if you don't have a simple business plan template, then just drop me a line um, and I'll, I'll, let you, I'll share what I have with you. And I've also got a couple of standard deal criteria checklist examples as well that uh, I'll be happy to share with you too. So um, yeah, just drop me a line for those things. But always start by knowing what you're looking for. It has to be relevant and appropriate for you and your personal circumstances and not for anybody else. Um, and even sometimes where people are following the same strategy, there are nuances, there are differences that uh, make it relevant and right for you. So have it, have it written down, um, have a clear plan and know what you're aiming at. The second thing I probably always say um, is plug your gaps. Um, so it, when you when you're going property, no nobody is the finished article. Nobody is complete, fully rounded, and is strong in everything. And it, if you think you are, you better you know look in the mirror and have a really good close look there because nobody is absolutely nobody is. There's, everybody has gaps. So the key is to know what your gaps are. Um, typically, they are more uh, one or more rather of time, know-how, or money. There could be other ones, but I'm just for the purpose of this conversation, I'm just going to focus on that time, uh, money, or know-how. And uh, and then of course we need to go about plugging these. But I know what you might be thinking: if I have no time or no money, which which are possibly two of the big ones that people think they can't overcome know-how hopefully by listening to things like this podcast you can plug that gap so I'm, I'm sure you've got that one by now but if you think you've got no time or no money and, and you're wondering how you can plug these gaps and then how it will actually reduce your risk in your property portfolio well let me try and illustrate that with a with a couple of examples let's start with a, a lack of money well we might be tempted to work in a, in, a, in a field or property field providing investor services, for example. So we don't have money, but we want to work in property, so we provide services to other investors. And that might be, for example, becoming a deal sourcer or handling property that we don't own. It's just a couple of examples. An example of that might be um, rent to rent, for example. Uh, but, but what if new legislation made it illegal to become a deal sourcer or enter into rent to rent contracts? Where would you stand then? So the best way to protect yourself in this situation is to transfer the income that you're generating through the investor services strategy into assets as you go. And this will help to plug the gap of being reliant on a single income stream remaining open to you. So it, it's not something that's going to immediately arise. It's something that you're going to have to work on. And that's part of the reason why I talked about evolving over time. So if you if you say I'm a deal source and I make my money through deal sourcing and maybe you're earning very good money doing that. I know a lot of deal sources make a lot of good money, but for some reason you can't do it anymore, then your income just immediately dries up. So my point there is I'd probably start to transfer that into, uh, into income generating assets um, instead. And it's part of the reason why personally I've added one or two additional strategies into my portfolio as I've progressed. So I'm not being totally dependent on any single strategy. On the other hand, when you start, it's probably best to focus on a single strategy because otherwise you just get spread too thinly and you won't, you know, jack of all trades, master of none and that kind of thing. So I think it's a good idea to um, start with focus, but as you evolve, perhaps to diversify in terms of strategy a little bit. And I gave the example there of transferring income into assets so that you're protecting and de-risking your portfolio uh, as a result. And with time, I'm also protecting myself by developing passive income and recurring income streams rather than repeating effort related income streams. 
so for example, property trading, you're repeating the same thing over and over again. And if you just spend the money, then you know you just need to keep pedaling faster to stand still effectively. So that's what I mean. So transferring into passive income uh, streams and, and also recurring income streams, which mean that you can earn income with minimal repeat effort. And, and the second point really is with a, a knowledge gap, um, so such as not being an expert on structural aspects of a building. And in my own personal case, um, that's, that's me. I'm not an expert on the structural aspects of a building. But what I tend to do is, is operate what I call an extra set of eyes approach. And by that, I mean having someone else look at the property that uh, does have this skill set. I don't have it. I have no real desire to, to learn it either, in all honesty. And I think I'm stronger in other areas, so I'd rather let somebody else who's strong in that area be my eyes on, you know, looking at that property, uh, property for me. And of course, their professional expert views uh, helps me to, to protect me and therefore de-risk me from the exposure of, as a result of my lack of knowledge. So therefore, that we can plug the, the, the knowledge gap as a result of that. Of course, I could get myself educated in this area, but you know, as I said, rather, I'd rather not really, I'd rather upskill in that, in that kind of area. And as far as time is concerned, well, um, I'm going to be, I want to maybe challenge some thinking there. We can always create uh, or set aside more time. And it's not usually creating time. That's probably a false statement I made there. It's not creating time. It's just reprioritizing our time and choosing what we do. So do we really need to watch TV? Do we really need to spend, you know, hours and hours sort of chatting away when we can just get to the point? Um, do, can we make better use of some of the time we have, for example, using a car, a car drive or a morning commute to also educate ourselves, that kind of thing. So, um, you know, Warren Buffett has the same number of hours in the day as me, so and he seems to get through quite a lot. And, I'm, you know, I'm sure that he focuses his time in an area that he feels is going to be most productive to him. And we'd probably rather labor that point. So let's move on to the next one, which is um, the third point really is asset allocation. Now, if you talk to anyone about investing, generally speaking, the topic of asset allocation or a term similar to that is probably going to uh, crop up. And asset allocation is the sensible spread of investments across different asset classes. But, you know, if you've only got £10,000 and a desire to grow your wealth in the short to medium term, then does it really make sense to spread this across uh, the different asset classes of, say, property, stocks and shares, bonds, precious metals and other alternative investments? Of course, I've just listed five alternative asset classes there. So if you did spread it across, then on average, you'd have something like £2,000 invested in each asset class. And, uh, and certainly in, in property, £2,000 won't get you very far at all. That said, I personally do have money spread across different asset classes and not just property. I was, however, heavily concentrated in property to begin with. But as I have, as I have grown, I've also added to other asset classes as well. Such as my, uh, my uh, such as my pro uh, current property assets, accounting for around about sixty percent of my total assets, and, and many would see this as still being overly weighted in a single asset class. But as you see, you should say, sorry, can't even talk. As you sh shall see shortly, I really can't talk. I have hedged this to some extent as well. In addition to asset allocation, I also allocate my investments by time scale or time horizon and type of return. For example, I have investments that are better suited for long-term and, uh, and more suited for short-term investment time horizons as well. 
I've also have some properties that are mainly capital growth plays, although not that many, in all honesty, uh, that exclusively rely on this. And even the ones that do, I am looking at debt pay down more so than riding house price growth. I will take house price growth, but I'm not reliant on it. That's my point. So I'll be looking to add value. I'll be looking to pay down my debt as my primary sort of capital strategies. And of course, I'll take some house price growth along the way as well as a bonus. However, I'm always seeking out property investments that generate an income, can service holding the property and some extra profit on top. I can then choose whether to spend the extra profit, reinvest it or pay down debt instead, as I personally prefer uh, you know, and what suits me at the moment in time. And I'm also not averse to selling property as well. I know lots of people say never sell property, but I literally have just sold a property and uh, I looked at it. Uh, I look at it quite regularly, actually. And uh, it just I just felt the time was right. I didn't feel that uh, it was the best use of my capital holding in that particular property. So I took it out and I put it in somewhere else as, uh, instead. But I do generally, as I mentioned, reinvest the proceeds into, into my property business. So I'm not taking money out of the business. I'm just reallocating it into what I feel is a better performing property. And of course, I'm talking about asset allocation here. So you could, in fact, uh, reallocate it into a better performing asset class instead. So uh, that's another, another way in which I've managed to diversify my risk into different asset classes, perhaps by you know, bolstering my stocks and shares portfolio and not just focusing heavily on property. Okay, another big one that you'll hear a lot is diversification. And um, that basically means spreading your risk about or spreading your investment around. So not just by asset class or asset allocation that we just talked about. We can diversify geographically, for example, by investing in different towns or cities or even countries, as I indeed do. I, um, I think I recently said I invest in five countries. It's now four because uh, the Spanish property that I was looking to get involved in, which would have been my first foray into Spain, um, it, it, it collapsed basically. So I invest in four different countries and that's certainly good enough for me right now. Um, so I've, I've diversified in you know, geographically, but also strategically. Uh, and you know the big caveat is what I said earlier about focusing to begin with. Focus on one strategy, get it right, systemize it, and then perhaps go on and uh, adopt a secondary strategy after that. And in my own personal case, I've got uh, investments in vanilla buy-to-let, short-term rentals or holiday lets, uh, property trading, development, vendor finance, and so on. So a number of different property strategies, but I don't, I don't suggest that you just go and immediately, you know, your first five investments are completely different strategies. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying over time, you perhaps evolve. And, and some of those strategies could be more cap capital gain orientated, and some of them could be more um, income uh, orientated. And I do suggest having some kind of balance for sure. Here's an interesting one, and um, it's not one that you might think is uh, is immediately uh, obvious, which uh, which is avoiding lender concentration. And it's tempting to go all in, perhaps with a seemingly great deal or facility from a single lender, but it all could also turn bad and that lender could hold you to ransom on the very day when you need some flexibility. I do remember talking to a chap who had a, 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 I mean, a three-digit portfolio, I mean, over 100 uh, properties in, uh, in Scotland. And um, he got taken to the cleaners. He had two prime lenders. So 100 properties with two lenders is heavily concentrated in terms of a lender concentration. And uh, for their various different reasons, they, they held him to ransom. 
And um, he, as a result, he lost everything, uh, quite frankly. Uh, th there's other reasons, perhaps, why he did, but I certainly wouldn't be looking to concentrate my uh, my lending with just one or two lenders with a sizable, uh, sorry, a portfolio of that sort of size. Um, I've got multiple lenders, and I've been planning to keep it that way. The next one is probably one that you might be more familiar with, it with which is interest rate protection. And my general rule here is fix as long as is economic for long-term buy and hold, and as short as is economic and safe to do so when you want to exit sooner. So it's really all about matching the interest rate fixed period to our uh, particular investment strategy and our particular property strategy. So uh, sometimes I, uh, I go into a project and I'm, it's a flip. So it's really just, there's no fix at all, really. Um, it's going to be in and out. I'm going to be paying some kind of variable rate um, to, to be in, in the deal for a short period of time. But on other occasions, I'll perhaps be looking to keep the property for a, a couple of years, maybe rent it out for a couple of years and, and take it from there and have a look. So in that case, I might just uh, have a two-year fix. But ordinarily, if I'm looking to keep that property for the long term, uh, and if I've refinanced or ready to perhaps extract some of my uh, added value or equity gain, I might be looking for, a, say, a five-year fix or even longer if I've got a long-term perspective. And of course, that, that helps me to hedge against uh, unexpected and indeed expected interest rate rises. It fixed the, uh, the, one of the heaviest proportions of my cost base, that's for sure. So uh, definitely do that. Adequate due diligence and regular checkbacks. When I talked about checkbacks, I wrote it down rather. I, I always I had this impression of, you know, when you go to a restaurant and somebody serves you uh, the waiter or the waitress, they come back, don't they? They come back a few minutes later and they just check everything is all right. And that's what I mean by this. So it's not just the initial due diligence that I'm talking about that many of us uh, hopefully are doing. Uh, I certainly advise we do. Um, check out the people that we're dealing with. So ask questions, be curious, do your own research, but also check back periodically to make sure all is still okay. Things change, people change, companies change. So it's always a good idea just to, you know, recap, regroup and uh, have a little check. But remember, everyone has an agenda and indeed their own motives for what they do. So what I mean by that is, um, is, is kind of trust yourself, really, to make your own checks. Don't necessarily, um, I mean, take, take things at face value, but check them out. <laughs> check out what people are saying is really the watchword there. And that's certainly what I do. The next one, which is sort of related, really, is to undertake portfolio reviews. And I do that with my own portfolio. I, I have a major portfolio review every year. So every year I'll look for every single property. It's around about tax return time. That seems to be a natural trigger to, to have a look at things. My accountant's asking me questions, so I may as well have a look at it myself. So I do a major portfolio review across all of my portfolio every year. But I also have what I call a sniff test, a minor review on individual properties as and when major events um, occur. Major events such as a tenant changeover or uh, a mortgage renewal, for example, on these individual properties. So I just take the opportunity to have a quick look at things. And indeed, that's exactly what happened on this particular property that I've just recently sold. Um, the mortgage was up for renewal and um, I just had a look made a call to a local agent I'd noticed that the price had jumped up you know quite a bit recently uh, he the agent that is was not sure it would last forever 
So uh, I took the opportunity to cash out and uh, transfer the investment into, into another asset in another area. But so, so the major minor portfolio reviews is the point. Now, amazingly, we're up to point nine now. So that's eight points completed. This is the ninth point. And it's somewhat related to the due diligence point earlier, this one, uh, which is careful supplier and partner selection. So by this, I mean, make sure that the people that you're dealing with are members of, of one or more, you know, more of their recognized trade or industry bodies. Uh, check for any reviews and social proof and feedback that's quite available online these days and dig a bit deep in that respect and get sight of their um, public liability or pu public indemnity insurance where it's applicable. Certainly with professionals, uh, I would do that. So, um, you know, and, and of course, check back periodically, but uh, you don't have to make, you know, your life a misery and just check, 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 but just make a few, uh, you know, just be curious, ask some questions, make a few checks in the first place and uh, now and again, and you'll be okay. And the 10th point is, um, it's another finance one really. And, uh, <clears throat> I've seen you know, a lot of people talk about or advocate, and in fact myself, I talk about leverage being a good thing, but over-leveraging can be dangerous, so I, I tend to avoid over-leveraging. Um, as I said, leveraging is a good thing. Uh, I certainly use it. Um, I look to perhaps refinance when I'm of added, added value and extract um, some of my, or quite a large chunk of my starting capital. I quite like that uh, that approach. But if we over-leverage too much, it can also be uh, fatal. To our property business so these people who perhaps are refinancing every couple of years or five to ten years and pulling out money and pulling out money i think is extremely dangerous uh, could go into the detail but could be setting us up for a fall there that we could become trapped effectively in a property we couldn't afford to sell it mainly because we couldn't afford the tax bill uh, and i'll come back to that point later as well so personally i tend to use 75 percent or 70 percent mortgages initially and I might even refinance uh, to this level after adding value to the property. But after that, I don't typically refinance again at a higher level to release more equity. And instead, I, I, I uh, aim to pay down my debt. And when you're growing quickly, the average loan to, to value on the portfolio could be quite high. Um, could be, say, on average 65% or more uh, across the entire portfolio. Of course, I've just talked already that if you've got one property and you start out on a 75% mortgage, then your average loan to value is 75%. But it's gonna, it should fall over time for a, co a couple of reasons. Um, and as we consolidate, that's probably the best thing to do, and that's certainly what I aim to do. Um, you should be aiming to get it down to around about 50% loan to value um, to be comfortable, I would say, in the long run. My current um, average loan to value is 55%, in fact. And this gives me a, a little bit of a buffer in case there ha happens to be a property crash. Uh, and of course, you can start to see how you can couple these up with other things. So if you avoid concentrating your risk with one particular lender, and if you avoid over leveraging, then you can start to protect yourself in case there is some sort of financial crisis, uh, which could potentially take things out of your uh, control. Next point really, point 11, is all about uh, contingency planning and buffer protection. And here, what I mean is, uh, is, is plan on having uh, more time and more money in all of your projects. Um, so, you know, things take longer, things cost more, is the general rule here. So have contingencies built into things. And equally, have at least two, if not three, alternative exits to your deal. So, for example, you could look to sell 
you could look to refinance, you could look to extend your finance and then delay your sale until later on. And that's four different uh, alternative uh, exit strategies, at least three. One's a twist on the other one, actually, but um, at least three different ex exit strategies there. So evaluate all three. Can you sell? Can you refinance? Can you extend the existing finance if you got yourself into a bit of a pickle? And equally have a contingency line built into every project. So I'm talking about refurb projects and that sort of thing. But for rental projects, also ha allow for the, um, the the unplanned costs that which are, you know, the sorry, the hard to quantify costs, which are, are definitely going to happen. So things like voids and maintenance uh, are obvious examples there. And people often ignore these, they don't provide for them, but I certainly do. Uh, so allow for these in your rental calculations and have a cash contingency fund set aside. So set aside that sum of money for voids and maintenance because you could use it later on. Now it could be the case that as you grow you might not need quite as much and there are other ways of providing for contingencies which is beyond the scope of this discussion but there could, there could be one or two other ideas as well. And a couple of rules I particularly have, I have what's called the boiler replacement rule. So the boiler replacement rule is if I have a rental property, I make sure that I'm building up a contingency fund, which would at least provide for a replacement boiler if I needed to. So by that, I mean, I'm providing for voids and maintenance. I set the money aside and it literally does that in case I need to replace a boiler, which could be two or three thousand pounds. I'm looking to get that sort of figure set aside. Of course, you could set it aside from the beginning. You don't have to save it out of, um, out of your rental income, but do set it aside. I also have what's called the 10% rule. So the 10% rule is where I'm undertaking a refurb project. And uh, that allows me to um, have a contingency in cases some unexpected cost that arises or an unexpected time delay, which could give rise to an unexpected cost. So the 10% rule. Uh, if you're less experienced, perhaps the 10% rule might need to be the 15% rule or something else. But uh, I certainly operate what I call the 10% rule. Okay, so we're on the uh, we're on the home straight, or certainly on the on the last lap of this list now. So number twelve, um, have a cash flow and equity safety margin. So in virtually all of my property deals, they they always wash their face. Well, I say virtually all, not in every case, uh, they wash their face. And so I I have some minimum cash flow criteria. So at least two hundred pounds a month when I start with a single let property. At least five hundred pounds a month when I start for an HMO in terms of uh, generating positive cash flow after allowing for all costs and provisions. Make a note of the last point, allowing for voids and maintenance. So it has to produce that sort of profit. You know, I tend to buy at a discount and uh, at, try and add value to property as well. So I'm trying to lock in additional equity there uh, as a bit of a safety margin. And there's certain ways of doing that uh, rather than just speculating on, on capital growth or house price growth. And of course, leaving equity in your property deal acts as a natural buffer in case of potential shocks as well. So it allows you to ride out a storm or ride out a property crash if you really need to. Next point really is all about knowledge. Talk about this quite a lot, uh, something I'm very passionate about, as you might tell. But uh, understanding what we're getting into, uh, remain current and keep one eye on the future as well. So. Um, you know, there's a few dimensions to that, of course. Know what we're getting into, keep current, so stay educated, and also have an eye on the future. Now, we don't all need to be futurist or anything like that, but you know, we certainly need to have a think. Um, but, but as an example, uh, as I was putting this together, I thought about I, I, I'm predicting, if you like, some greater regulation for smaller HMOs. 
at the moment. Um, it's only sort of larger, mid-sized and larger HMOs that uh, need to be licensed. But I'm expecting the criteria to toughen up in the next couple of years and perhaps, you know, smaller, two, for example, two-story HMOs uh, of five people or you know, that sort of number to become uh, or have a need to be licensed in the future. Of course, that would that would mean that there's extra regulation that needs to be complied with. There's potentially changes to the property that needs to be made as well. So I'm trying to future-proof some of my investments by taking all these into account in the first place. And similarly, if we look at serviced accommodation, short-term rentals and that kind of thing, you know, you can see some tougher regulation in major cities. Um, you see it globally. Uh, places like Barcelona and New York, for example, have introduced regulation. But of course, in London, same thing as well with the 90 day limit uh, without planning permission being required. And that's just been introduced, if you like, and we need to be mindful of those sort of things. So we need to make sure that our properties are bought and developed with sustainability in mind. And that's certainly something that I aim to do. Insurance protection. As they say, shit happens. <laughs> So sadly, we have to prepare for that as well. Uh, and I take out a, a premium landlord's insurance policy that has all of these provisions included as a minimum on top of uh, basic building insurance that covers fire, explosion and lightning, earthquake, theft, storm or flood, escape of water or oil and subsidence. So in addition to all of that, which you, you I dare say were a fairly standard cover, I have public liability, I have landlord contents, accidental damage, riot and malicious damage, and even terrorism cover in my policy. And uh, yes, it adds the cost, definitely adds the cost, but it also reduces my risk of exposure for some of these things. Even, you know, some of them as remote as they might be. I mean, a aircraft landing on your property, it'd be a bit of bad luck, wouldn't it? But I have that covered just in case. Um, but you can also insure for loss of rent and indeed legal protection if you need to evict a tenant as well. And, and periodically, uh, or sorry, personally, not periodically, personally, I self-insure for loss of rent by providing for and indeed setting aside voids across my entire portfolio. But some people prefer actual insurance instead and not necessarily setting aside the, um, the cash. So uh, each their own, but I, I certainly suggest having adequate insurance protection to a high degree. This one might not sound so obvious really when we're talking about risk protection, but number 15 is keep a lid on transaction costs. And we pay fees when we buy, we pay fees when we sell, and we pay fees when we finance and refinance property. And uh, to many different people, for many different reasons, this is. And by keeping our transaction volumes down, we can also keep our fees leakage down and so improve the health and indeed profitability of our portfolio. A profitable portfolio allows us to weather the odd storm uh, that will inevitably come around and uh, therefore will help de-risk our portfolio as a direct result, let alone it being more profitable, obviously, and keep more cash in our own pocket. So keep a lid on the transaction costs. And that kind of, if you like, you're starting to see some patterns here that goes hand in hand with perhaps having a longer term uh, interest rate fixed period. You can keep your sort of refinancing costs down as well. So you can see how it kind of dovetails in to a point I made earlier. Well, the last point really I kind of wanted to talk about today was uh, was planned for tax. So this is the 16th on my rather long list, so I'm trying to get through it. Um, now, just keep, keep this in mind. I talk to a lot of people about tax, but if we have to pay tax, and indeed if we are paying tax, then we should be doing something right. And um, I think that's the first thing to, to point out. 
but apart from the new uh, Section 24 uh, mortgage relief restrictions, which we could we could could mean we're paying tax on a loss-making property, or in, indeed a loss-making portfolio, paying tax usually means we've made a profit. So plan to pay tax and set aside a sum of money to do this. An awful lot of people that go bankrupt do so because they can't pay their taxes when they fall due. Tax is usually deferred into the future, long after the income has been received, so it's prudent to set aside the tax bill to one side to make sure that we can pay it when it becomes due. And this is the most basic form of tax protection or tax planning there is. After that, by all means, speak to a professional tax advisor and, uh, and set up the relevant tax structures that best suit you and your personal situation and plans. Personally, I now have a mixture of ownership structures that has evolved over the years and which mitigates my tax position in a legal and efficient way. I'd suggest keeping things simple to begin with and then adapt as you grow and scale your property business. And if you want um, a bit of a by the way here, but if you want a, a free training module on ownership and tax structures, then Tony Gimple, you might remember as a former guest on the show, has kindly put together a, a half an hour training module on tax structures, to, um, exclusively for uh, exclusively rather for the uh, listeners of the Property Voice. So, just drop me an email, podcast at propertyvoice.net, and I'll share that with you if you'd like to see it. Okay. I think I better stop there. It's getting quite long, isn't it? So when I was initially asked the question by Anthony, how do you de-risk your property portfolio? As I mentioned, I supplied around five or six off-the-cuff comments. But it seems I have around 16 different ways in which I de-risk my personal portfolio. But if I could prioritise, which I'm going to attempt to do now, if I could prioritise some of these, I'd probably suggest that if we could focus on these three, it'll go a long way to protecting your downside risk. So first and foremost, due diligence, research and knowledge. Ask questions, be curious, do your background checks and understand what you're getting into. So that'd be the first one to focus in on. Get some uh, slack and buffer included in your numbers and don't over leverage so that you can withstand a setback or two that will inevitably crop up. And number three, diversify. You can diversify across different properties, across geographies, and arguably strategies strategies rather as you grow and develop your property portfolio. So uh, they're the main ones really. So a bit about due diligence and knowledge, a bit about building in, in contingencies and exit plans and buffers, and a little bit about diversification. And they're probably my top three. So uh, if, you, if you ignore the 16 and just focus on the three, you're probably doing okay. And I hope this rather long list has been helpful to you. And uh, keep in mind, though, that I have now quite a diverse and complex portfolio. And so many of these risk protection strategies that I have have arisen as a direct result of that. But if all you want is a simple buy-to-let investment, then just focus on my top three tips that I mentioned at the end there. Perhaps adding in one more, which might be for adequate insurance protection, and then you should be good. However, as you grow and develop, you might find that you want to become more sophisticated in your approach, just as I have been. Needless to say, I think that's enough for one episode. So um, as usual, email me, podcast at thepropertyvoice.net if you want to talk about anything from today's show or more generally in property investing. But as usual, the show notes will be over at uh, the website, thepropertyvoice.net. But for now, all I want to say is thank you very much for listening once again this week. And until next time on the Property Voice podcast, it's ciao, ciao. 
Thank you for listening today. Now head over to thepropertyvoice.net for more inspirational content and get updates through our mailing list. Join us next time on the Property Voice podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to rate us on iTunes.